Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. It's a beautiful day outside, a little bit warm, but still a beautiful day. Have I told you guys that I'm glad to see you? Yes, amen. The first thing I would like to do is I would like to have all the fathers stand up if they would. All, all you dads, amen. You know, we, we live in a time that is that's strange where the patriarchal system that God has set in place where the father is the head of the house is something that's, that's under attack more so now than, than I've ever seen it. I am grateful that God has set that system in place. I am grateful for you men that have led your families. So let's just pray really quick. Father, we are so thankful, God, that sometimes what doesn't seem good to the world is really the best thing for us. We know that your systems and the system that you've set in place, that a father is the head of the household, and God, that doesn't make him a king or a tyrant. Father, that he, that he leads as you would have him lead. So we pray that you would bless these men this morning. We pray that you would continue to, to show them your way. Help us to lead our families in a way that is pleasing to you. Thank you in Jesus' great name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Well, we are going to take a look at Psalm 119 again. And uh, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. So I figured in honor of that, I would probably take a couple of verses from every book out of the Bible today and read. We'll, we'll make it. You'll be out of here by 2 o'clock. Don't worry about it. It'll, it'll be fine. I promise. 2 o'clock. No, I'm not going to do that. Maybe. <laughs> Psalm 119, starting at verse 113. And we're going to go down to verse 119. I'm sorry, 20, verse 120. Psalm 119, starting at verse 113. David says, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Sustain me according to your word, that I may live, and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me that I may be safe, that I may have regard for your statutes continually. You have rejected all those that wander from your statutes, for their deceitfulness is useless. You have removed all of the wicked of the earth like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Some very interesting words that the psalmist has has used here in this psalm, and I want to kind of walk through this. The first thing that he says is something that strikes us that we can read a little bit about in the New New Testament scripture. He says, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. We know from the book of James that that, uh, Double, double-mindedness is mentioned there, as well as many other places in the Scripture. T- 
to more fully understand what it means to be double-minded, we need to go back to the words and the definition that were used in the original language. Sometimes in our day and time, we get things turned around and we redefine words, and it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing that it did to the folks that wrote it. So in Psalm 119, when David used the term double-minded, the Hebrew word that he used was seaf, seaf, and just, just remember that word. Uh, the words double-minded are also talked about, as we've said, in the book of James, where he talks about the problems of being double-minded, and we're going to go into that a, a little more in depth here in just a few minutes. But in James 4, James used a Greek word instead of a Hebrew word. The Greek word that he word that he used is a very, very interesting word. I like it's dipsukos. Dipsukos. Now both these words, seaf and dipsukos, essentially mean the same thing. If you think about a double-minded man in our terminology today, it means essentially the same thing, but those two words have a little bit different meaning. It means divided half-hearted, doubting, divided in mind and in heart. It, it is literally to have two spirits, is what they're saying, two different spirits. Now, let's take a, a, a closer look at the problem of double-mindedness. James says in, 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 verse, uh, in chapter 1, verse 8, he, he says it makes someone unstable. He says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. In contrast to that, God's Word is what provides stability in our lives. Now, David wrote earlier in verse 89 of this psalm, he said, forever, Lord, your Word is settled in heaven. God's Word, if you're relying on God's Word, you're not unstable. You're not a double-minded man. So we'll, we'll just get that out of the way right up front. David said, your word is settled in heaven, and it should be settled here as well. So, Double-mindedness is also associated with impurity. James wrote, cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's James 4, verse 8. In contrast, David says in verse 9 of this psalm that we can keep our way pure by keeping it according to God's word. Being double-minded double will prevent us from committing to God. It will prevent us from fully committing to what God says. Now, you know that God's word requires us to choose one way or the other. We, we can't be wishy-washy. We can't be for one thing one day and for something else the next day. David said, from your precepts, I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. He, now, you'll notice that David does not say, I hate double-minded people, but I love the people that are not double-minded. He didn't say that. He didn't contrast the double-mindedness of men with the non-double-mindedness of other men. He contrasted it with God's law. That's the only real, real contrast that can be made because I can say things that's not double-minded one day and I might turn around the next day and say something, well, man, he's really double-minded, really double-minded. 
Why? Only God's law provides the perfect contrast from the double-mindedness of man. We can't compare ourselves to somebody else and say, oh, I'm better than that guy. I'm way better than him. I may not be what God wants me to be, but I'm better than he is. You can't contrast your life or any part of God's law with how other men are doing. It has to be what God says to do. It has to be contrasted with God's law. I, uh, now, the contrast with the law of God draws a pretty sharp distinction between the two things. And it's a distinction that's difficult for people in our age today to grasp. It's difficult for them to accept. You know that there are some absolutes, right? You know that, there, that God has laid down some absolutes. And no matter what the world will say, the culture of the day, anyone, any organization, that's true. And that will not change. That will not stop being true. So no matter what the popularity of things that say that's not true, no, no matter how popular that gets, remember that, that, that there are some absolutes in this world. God's word makes double-mindedness and the law of God mutually exclusive. What do I mean by that? They're at opposite ends of the spectrum. Opposite ends of the spectrum. Generally, when man is double-minded, he is not doing what God wants him to do. He's wavering between two things. He's divided in his heart and in his mind. So this shouldn't be a surprise to us. The Lord draws many sharp distinctions in his word and makes many things mutually exclusive. You can't have the two uh, coexist with each other. So among those things are good and evil, holy and unholy. There's actual holy and there's actual unholy, clean and unclean, righteousness and unrighteousness. There's a, there's, a, there's a law of God that defines what those two things are, what is and is not. And that's just to name a few. Now, Nathan just recently did a blog uh, that talked about calling what is good evil and what is evil good. When David talked about the double-minded, double he, did, he did something that is lost in our world today. He used the law of God to set the standard. We don't do that today. We don't use the law of God to, to set the standard of our lives. And if we do, we will seem like that we're out of touch with things. We will seem like that we're not up on the culture we will seem like that we're old-fashioned. We'll seem like we're not being intellectual if we use God's Word to set the standard. We must, must use God's Word. It will not change, and it shouldn't change for us. So one other way to get the, or just another way to get the concept of what David and James were talking about about being double-minded. double, double minded. Let's look at another situation in Scripture where the concept was displayed. 1 Kings 18, verse, verse number 21. Now, before the showdown that, uh, with the prophets of Baal, the prophet Elijah challenged the people, and he said these words, "'How long will you hesitate between two opinions? "'If the Lord is God, follow him.'" 
But if Baal, then follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. Now that word hesitate is literally translated from the Hebrew to limp on two divided opinions. You, you started to go that way, but you're like, ah, no, I can't go that way. Now, so they didn't answer him. Double-minded. Let's quickly go back to the book of James to get a little more insight on this. The background context of the, of the book of James is that the church had been dispersed outside of Palestine. These were primarily Jewish, Jewish Christians. Uh, they were experiencing persecution and poverty. The persecution had become so bad that they were afraid for their lives, so, so, so they dispersed out of the city. James was writing to encourage them to hold fast in the midst of their trials and their persecution. And James 1 starts with a very challenging command for these Christians. He said they should classify, now, now get this, we're going to read it in a second, but I want you to get what he's saying. He said they should classify hard things in their lives as joyful <laughs> because those trials help us develop a deeper trust in God. James also says that Christians who trust God must also seek wisdom from him and not from ungodly, ungodly sources, not from the world, not from those that hate God. James, James' writing style, I like James's writing style. He was kind of a a gritty, street-style kind of a guy. He would tell you how it is. He didn't mind saying the hard things. As a matter of fact, like somebody else that I know, uh, he, he kind of enjoyed saying the, ru the rough stuff. His straightforward approach kind of reminds me of the Old Testament prophets. James, it is really, it's really, really good. So, but anyway, enough about that. Let's read James 1, starting at verse 1. And this is going to be up on the screen, and we're going to go through one through four first. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dis dispersed ab abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produ produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What? What? How could James be so insensitive to these people? The plight of these poor Jewish Christians, their lives were at stake. And he tells them to count it all joy when they're going through trials? He said they needed to keep following God and his commands to become guess what? Better Christians. Doesn't James realize they're going through these, these are rough times? These are rough days, James. We can't, that's not what, that's not what we're, we signed up for for you. We need some encouragement from you. How dare him to say that they should be joyful in their trials? He's not walking in their shoes. James said it was producing something in them that would make them closer to God and complete in Jesus. Closer to God and complete in Jesus. That was more important than the trial they were going through. 
it's almost like James thought that being a devoted Christian was the most important thing in the world. What's he thinking? Well, it, it was, and it still is. Don't miss the fact that James is actually telling them something that will bolster their endurance in, in, through this trial. Look at verse 3. James says that these Christians, he tells them that the testing of their faith produces endurance. Endurance. He knew they were going to have to endure this, but this was going to make them better able to do that. He said they should even be joyful when they go through various trials because it's making them better. It's making them better. You do not hear that today. That nobody's going to build a mega church on that, I can tell you right now. Nobody. <laughs> James goes on. He says this, his gritty street style again. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now let's stop here for just a second. Why would James follow up? what he's just said with a statement about lacking wisdom. Could it be, could it be that James knows that it will take wisdom from God for them to understand what was happening to them in the world? Could it be that James is trying to uh, have them rely on something that will tell them what's going on and will bolster their faith because that was the most important thing in the world to them? Could it be that? Is that still true today? Is that concept still true today? Will God bolster your faith and your endurance through trials? Does he still do that today? He does. He does. You can say amen. It's okay. <laughs> it's still true today. It is still true today. Let's move on. We're talking about, and I forgot to start my timer, so I've been going, what, about two, three minutes now? And, uh, that, you know what? Last time I spoke, it was the, it was Siri, Siri that interrupted, yeah. It was a duck. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start over. So, <laughs> uh, I just wanted to give you guys an update since since we're there. We're there. Siri, as you guys know, and uh, I'm I'm no, she's not she's not calling right now. Uh, the last time I spoke, I mentioned her name inadvertently, or she thought I did, and she chimed in, and the message was on fellowship. And she, she chimed in that she wanted to have fellowship with us. I want to report to you, since that time, she's given her heart to Christ, and she is now saved. She's working on Alexa right now. So, Okay. When it gets to be 2 o'clock, will somebody just raise their hand? 
let's move on. We are talking about the double-mindedness of men, so stick with me, okay? James goes on, verse number six, but he must ask in faith, he's talking about wisdom, he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That's pretty harsh, that a double-minded man who asks for wisdom and he doubts that God's going to send it ought not to expect anything from God. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? That's hard, but that's true. That's what James says. It's in the Scripture. (laughs) Keep in mind, keep in mind that James is talking to Christians. He's talking to people that have turned their life over to Christ. So back to verse 113 of the psalm where David says he hates the double-minded. David also says in Psalm, in psalm 31, and we don't have that up there, Paula, that he hates those who pay regard to vain idols. In Psalm 139, David says he hates those who hate the Lord. We need to consider this in its proper context that we, we need to understand that this man, after God's heart, had an unwavering commitment to God and his ways. Don't forget David's story. You say, Barney, how did he have an unwavering commit- commitment? He was an adulterer and a murderer. David knew that outside of repentance to God and the mercy of God that David experienced, that David's life wasn't very pretty. It wasn't very pretty. This thought toward his, anim- uh, uh, toward his enemies and those that didn't like him, David seems void of compassion when he says, I hate the double, double-minded. It doesn't seem like he's a very nice guy. It wasn't void of compassion. It wasn't. King Saul, who was the king of Israel before, before David, had, had thrown spears at David. He hunted him down to kill him. David had two opportunities, at least two that we know of in, in Scripture, to kill King Saul, and he would not. Don't forget to read why he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't kill King Saul, a man who was hunting him down like an animal. David said that Saul was the Lord's anointed. And he would not raise his hand against the one that God had set in place. David was not a man who had no compassion. So why would David make such a bold statement? I hate the double-minded. David knew the horrible consequences of sin, but he also knew the mercy of God that is sometimes beyond our comprehension, sometimes beyond anything that we can understand. You see, David had learned these lessons the hard way. He had immersed himself in horrible sin. Last week, Jacob talked about David's son Absalom and the terrible situation where he had killed his brother Amnon. These were two of David's sons and killed Amnon after he had raped his sister. David knew the depth of sin and its far-reaching consequences. 
In Psalm 51, the psalm where David is crying out to God, and that's not up here either, Paula. David is crying out to God in repentance for his sin. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Did God exhibit mercy to him? He absolutely did. Did David ever forget the devastation that his sin had caused him and his kids? He never, he never forgot that. Sometimes God's mercy is beyond our comprehension. David knew that without the mercy of God, he had no hope. David saw the horrible consequences of sin as it had played out in his own life. Now, why did David say, I hate the double-minded? David viewed the double-minded as an insult to the God who had never failed him. Even when David was wrong, God didn't fail him. God's mercy extended to him. It isn't unusual for, for a person who has seen the devastation that sin can cause to hate all that is contrary to God and his law. It isn't unusual for that to happen. We must avoid double-mindedness at all costs. And if we hate it in others, we also have to have the same hatred of it if it's in us. Have to have the exact same hatred of it. It is possible for a believer's heart to be divided. It won't stay that way forever. It will go one way or the other. We need to pray for it to be united and single-minded, but that prayer has to be made, James says, without any doubt. Back to Psalm 119. Verse 114 says, David said, you are my hiding place and my shield. It isn't any wonder that David felt like God and his word was his hiding place. He says, I wait for your word. David wasn't hiding from God. He was hiding in God. His protection, his shield was God. The Psalms are, are filled with language uh, that, that talking about God as our protector and our shield. You know, uh, John Pryor sings a song that's based on Psalm 3, and it says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me and the one who lifts my head. David was a mighty warrior. He was a, he was a valiant man when it came to fighting physical battles. But he realized that he was in a spiritual battle against those who do not follow God. we are in a spiritual battle. And many times it is against those who do not follow God. Paul said in 2 in Corinthians 10, he said, for though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We can't war like the rest of the world wars. Did you know that? We're fighting a spiritual battle. God has to be our shield. God has to be. David's battle was a spiritual uh, battle, and so is ours. Don't be deceived. Even though, even though there are physical battles going on, and there are, 
the driving force behind it is still spiritual. We need to proclaim God and his word now more than ever. We don't need to shrink back. We need to do it now more than ever. Paul encouraged Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 to keep fighting alongside him and not to give up. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of, of David, according to my gospel, which, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned, Paul says. The statement that, that David makes in verse 114, he says, I wait for your word, is literally translated, I hope in your word. David's hope was in God and in his word. Our hope better be in God and in his word as well. David says in verse 115, Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. David saw these people as a hindrance to his obedience to God. He actually tells them to get away from him. Have you ever been around somebody that you want to say, hey, hit the road, Jack? <laughs> David says, depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Sustain me, verse 116, sustain me according to your word that I may live and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. The word of God sustained David. He relied on the fact that God's word had kept him, and it would keep him in the future too. This is something that we forget. It's very easy to go through a trial and to have God sustain you through his word. And the next trial comes along, and you've forgotten all about that. You've forgotten that God sustains you through that. He's trustworthy. He's faithful. The promises of God were trustworthy and his statutes had guided David in all of his comings and goings. Even, even at the time when David was wrong, God's mercy was poured out to him. So how does this all relate to us in 2020? How is it, how is it that God and his word sustains us? You see, we can we can read God's word, but we have, a, we have the luxury, the experience of being able to experience the living word. The gospel of John tells us that the word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us. Do you know who that is? It's Jesus, the word of flesh. There are two Greek words in the New Testament that are translated word, W-O-R-D, word. Sound like a gangster now, don't know that word. Yeah. Those two words are rima and logos. They have slightly different meanings. Rima usually means a spoken word, but logos has a little deeper meaning. It implies that this word was the very message that God had for all mankind. Jesus was the word that became flesh. He was the message that God had for all mankind. David knew that he could trust everything God does 
He could trust everything God does, but he also trusted everything God said. That's not so easy. That's not so easy. We have the privilege of not only learning from the spoken and the written word of God, but we must also follow Jesus, the word that was made flesh, the message of God to this world. Back to Psalm 119, verse 117. Uphold me that I may be safe, that I may have regard for your statutes continually. David says, he goes on to say in verse 118, that God has rejected all those who wander from his statutes. At this point, David was referring to the people of God, the Jews. They would have been those that had the statutes of God and had wandered from them. He says, you have rejected all those who wander from your statutes for their deceitfulness is useless. It literally says, that word useless is translated falsehood. Their deceit is falsehood. David says that it's useless. Paul spoke of of people like that in Titus 1. Paul says there are many rebellious men who are defiled and unbelieving. They profess to know God, but but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. David finished this section of this psalm with some strong words against those who wander from God. He says, he says that in verse 119, he says, God has, you have removed all of, the, all of the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. Do you know what dross is? Dross is the trash, the scum that is, that is skimmed off of gold or silver when it's refined. It's heated beyond a melting point. This dross is trash. It's scum, and they have to get it off. It comes to the top, and then it's skimmed off and then thrown away. David says you've removed all the wicked of the earth like dross. This process, this refining of gold, is something called not melting, although it does melt, It's called smelting, smelting. A refiner of gold will do this process numerous times to get the purest of gold. This refining of gold has been around since around 6,000 B.C. David knew what dross was. So this would have been very well known to him. The scripture talks about pure gold being refined seven times. In the scripture, dross symbolizes impurity. Like the dross in metal contaminates the gold, the spiritual dross will contaminate the follower of God. Did you know that? About 400 years after Psalm 119 was written, the prophet Ezekiel described the wrath of God that was coming upon the people of Israel because they had turned away from the Lord. He told, he told Ezekiel that his own people had become like dross. The language that's used here describing the wrath of God is terrifying. I actually 
prayed and said, God, you really want me to read this? Is that what you want me to do? Ezekiel 22, starting at verse 19. Therefore, thus says the the Lord God, and he's talking about his own people, don't forget. Because all of you have become like dross. Behold, therefore, I am going to gather you in the midst of Jerusalem as they gather silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into the furnace to blow fire on it in order to, to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath and I will lay you there and melt you. I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath that you will be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in the furnace, so you will be melted in the midst of it. You will know that I, the Lord, have poured out my wrath on you. David knew the consequences of being double-minded. It doesn't end in just wavering. It doesn't end in someone just saying, I don't know, I can't make up my mind. It ends in not following God. He says in verse 120 of Psalm 119, my flesh trembles for fear of you, for I am afraid of your judgments. I believe there's a a lack of healthy fear of God and his judgments in our world today. I know that if we've accepted the blood of Christ, that was shed for our sin, we should have no condemnation. Look up every time that someone in the scripture came face to face with God. There was a a reverent fear that overtook them. You know, I really wanted this message to be uplifting. I wanted it to be encouraging. I wavered back and forth about that scripture in Ezra because I, th- I thought it proved a, a good point, but not, it wasn't, didn't seem to be very uplifting. I wanted to be able to give you the beautiful picture of how much God loves us. We're living in a time when the, the truth is not welcomed and not even tolerated in many cases. The fact is that for you to be able to understand the whole story of God, you have to have all the pieces. You have to be able to hear it all. God hates sin. God is just. And any narrative that says otherwise is a lie. Since he is just, he has to punish sin. We can run from that. We can water that down. We can make it sound good to the culture that we in so that they don't berate us for that. We can, you can even say that you don't believe that. But it's still true. It's still true. That's one of those things that does not change. God hates sin so much that he has never wanted us to be enslaved by it. God doesn't want us to have to pay the penalty for sin. So if there's anything encouraging in this, know that. It takes a sacrifice that we could never give. It requires a payment that we can't make. Here's the encouraging piece. Here is the good news. God is full of mercy. God loves us. He sent his son so that we don't have to pay the penalty for sin. The scripture tells us that God made Jesus 
become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. The righteous for the unrighteous. The holy was given for the unholy. So you see, unless you know how God views sin, the mercy and the love that he shows to us will have little value unless you know what he thinks about sin. I am grateful that God is still allowing us to proclaim his word. This world needs it, church. They need to hear the truth of the gospel. They need to hear it. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.